Our reading is taken from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And for those of you with Pew Bibles, it's on page 1224. So 1224, James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Supposing someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor person in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the one who is poor, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Um, it's really good to be with you this morning. Good to see you all. Um, for anyone who might not know who I am, I'm Laura, um, and part of the church here with my family. Owen is uh, one of the vicars here. Um, and usually on a Sunday morning, um, since the arrival of Nia, our latest edition, I'm I'm kind of normally found juggling our three children, <laughs> um, who are all under four years old. Uh, so I come to you this morning, slightly kind of blurry-eyed, with definite baby brain, um, but, uh, and I've had moments this week where I picked up my notes to find that they'd been covered in felt-tip drawings. So God's going to have to make up the difference even more than usual this morning, but hey, that is no bad thing. And it's been really good um, for me, actually, over the 
um, last few weeks or so to have this passage in the back of my mind. It's been really challenging, uh, but really good. And last Sunday, um, we started this teaching series that we're doing uh, through the book of James, um, a letter in the New Testament, which was written uh, by one of Jesus' brothers, uh, probably uh, somewhere between about 10 to 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus, um, to those who, uh, those Jewish Christians who were living outside the land of Israel. We, we know that from the opening um, of the letter, where it says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. These were those uh, who had come to believe that the Messiah who had been promised in the Old Testament was Jesus Christ. And they were committed as Jewish Christians to following him. They had encountered the truth of Jesus and their lives had been changed and transformed. And those are the people to whom James, the brother of Jesus, uh, is writing these words. And it contains this letter, lots of different instructions. So we have instructions about taming our tongue, uh, instructions about how we should pray, instructions about patience. And here, for us this morning, in this second chapter, we have another specific instruction, where a scenario is depicted uh, where, uh, in the gathering of Christians, uh, someone comes in in fine clothing and is given the best seat And somebody else comes in who's wearing shabby clothes and is told to sit at somebody else's feet or to sit separate where favoritism is condemned by James. Now, diving straight in uh, to this chapter, um, at the end of chapter two, which wasn't uh, read to us this morning just because of time, but do have a read of it later, um, uh, verses 14 through to the end of chapter 2 have this whole discussion about faith and works. And we read in verse 14 to 15, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Some of you might be sat there thinking, "Um, yeah. Isn't that the whole point? that this whole thing is just about our faith and our salvation in Jesus isn't about what we do. You know, we bring nothing to the table. This isn't something we can merit or earn. It's God's gift to us. It's grace. It is about faith. It's not about what we do. Uh Uh-oh, James. Slightly dodgy theology going on here. And maybe some of you know some of Paul's theology as well, where in places like Ephesians, um, he says this in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 8 through to 9. It is by grace we are saved, by, uh, by faith. And this is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a little awkward, isn't it? Let's not get Jesus' brother James and Paul in the same room together. But actually, (laughs) James would definitely underscore the fact that our salvation, the fact that we enter into relationship with God, has nothing to do with what we bring. It is all, and we'll remember this later as we come to communion, it is all through what Jesus has done for us on the cross, through his death, through the resurrection, us inheriting eternal life. That is a gift, that is grace. But what James is saying here makes a lot of sense. If that has happened to us, if we have come to be saved through faith in Jesus, then it's going to make a difference, isn't it, to how we live? Our 
relationship with God like any relationship that we have, our faith in Christ, like anything we come to realize and know, it's just inevitably going to change the way that we live, what we do, what we say, who we are. He's, he's making a very reasonable point here. You know, there is definitely a way of being that makes sense once we start following Jesus. Now, when Nia, our latest addition, was born, I asked my mum-in-law who she thought Nia looked like, and she kind of smiled and simply said, she just looks like one of your babies. <laughs> and we've looked back through the photo albums, the baby albums of our other two, Karis and Morgan, since uh, Nia was born, and wow, genes are remarkable things, aren't they? <laughs> She just looks like one of our babies. Our kids just look like our kids. <laughs> you see, there is a way, isn't there, of being and of loving and of blessing this world that makes you look like you belong to the family of God, that makes you look like you belong to a loving, blessing the world Father in heaven. I was um, in a taxi been driven from Bristol Temple Meads to a church in Bristol to uh, go and talk to some undergraduates a couple of years ago. And um, the taxi driver was asking me what I was going to do, and that led to a conversation about faith and God. And for him, the kind of crunch point was this whole thing of authenticity. And could it be that what everyone was proclaiming about Jesus and about faith in God was actually needing to make more of a difference to the way that Christians were living their lives. I, he's not alone. I know that for many of us and for many people around, that is a key point in turning to faith, in looking at what the church is like and seeing, does this actually work, this following Jesus reality? Can we see it fleshed out? And this is a sort of tension that James really feels too in his letter. In fact, if we were to say that this letter was about one thing, we'd probably say it was about integrity. Seven times throughout the book of James, he uses this word, perfect. In uh, chapter 1, verse 4, he says that trials will make us perfect. In chapter 2, verse 22, Abraham, he writes, was made perfect through his faith. And in chapter 3, verse 2, someone who keeps a rein on their tongue is made perfect. Um, in biblical Hebrew, I'm told, uh, this word is tamim, or in Greek, it's teleos, which means wholeness. James is inviting us here, he's calling us to live a life in which following Jesus matches up with what we do, what we say, who we are. There is an integrity to us as believers. There is a wholeness to us. That's what this word perfect means as he says it again and again. And so in this specific example we have in chapter two, we see that, don't we? That we are to not show favoritism as we hold on to the faith of Jesus. It's because of our faith in him that we do the certain things that we do, that we live the certain way that we do. That's where the integrity, that's where the authenticity comes in. And that is a witness to a watching world. But here's the truth. We are all compromised, aren't we? We are. We lack that integrity. 
You know, we follow Jesus and we also follow culture. We follow Jesus and we also follow our comforts and our desires. We follow our prides and our insecurities. We lack that tamim, that wholeness, that perfection. And what sometimes maybe people notice isn't that great. Isn't that striking? Isn't that different to the lives that they live? So that's the truth, isn't it, yeah? We are all compromised. But the truth is also that the Holy Spirit is committed. He is committed to making the people of God people who are whole. People who have that integrity. People who are those where there isn't a massive gap between what they read and hear and how their lives look. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is committed to doing that. And I guess you might be thinking, yeah, I know this, Laura. I know that integrity is what we're about. And um, I know we compromise. But I know we've got to strive for this authenticity. And do you know what I was really feeling as I was thinking about this message? Rather inconveniently, because, you know, with a, a newborn and two preschoolers, I've got quite a lot on my plate right now, Lord. Uh, but I felt really strongly like God was saying to me, you know, what are you going to do about this, Laura? What are you actually going to do about this? About this specific example here in James chapter 2, about the poor, about the needy. What are you actually going to do? It's okay to agree with what James is saying here and to understand the theology and to get it. And I know we do. But what are we actually going to get out there and do about it so that we look like we're part of God's family? And I think it comes down to a couple of questions which maybe we could ask ourselves this morning. Uh, Last week, Owen said that wisdom, according to this book and according to James, is seeing things for what they really are. So he was talking about how in light of the resurrection, there is always hope. That's how we see things for what they really are, even in the midst of trials and tribulations. Because of the resurrection, there is always hope. And I think chapter 2 asks us to see people for who they really are. To see people for who they really are. If wisdom in James is seeing things for what they really are, here we're asked to see people for who they really are. So how do we, first question then, how do we see people? Verse 2 starts out, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I was chatting with the vicar of a church near Oxford the other day and was saying, yeah, you know, it's that chapter in James about giving the rich the good seats and giving the poor the bad seats. And he looked at me, he smiled, and he said, hmm, welcome to the Church of England. (laughs) Now, he's very committed to the Church of England, and he knows he hasn't got the whole story there because uh, the Church of England are doing wonderful things to bless the poor and to engage uh, with those in need. You know, as a church, we uh, run Food Bank, uh, we run CAP, uh, Christians Against Poverty, helping those in debt. There are many of you here this morning who are absolutely full of integrity in this area. 
and I, and I get that, and we applaud one another in that. This is the way we are called to live. But I do wonder whether we as a church need to ask ourselves, how welcoming really are our Sunday gatherings to the poor? Or our small groups? Or our lives? Now, nobody here, if someone came in in shabby clothes, would make them sit at their feet. I'd be very surprised to see that. But do we give ourselves enough opportunity from day to day to love those in need? Or are we cloistered far too much in our comfort? Do we subtly, in our churches, in our homes, in our families, through the things we buy, the clothes we wear, the choices we make, do we actually, sometimes inadvertently, give preferential treatment? Give with our lives the good seats to those with wealth and the bad seats to the poor? Are the poor, because of our lifestyles, forced to sit at our feet? How do we see people? Do we spend most of our time with those that can benefit us in some way? Do we get too much of a kick out of those moments we spend with someone who in a given social situation would be considered high up? Do we quietly, in the recesses of our minds, become those who, verse 4 says, are judges with evil thoughts? Do we, and these are all really challenging questions for me as well, do we lack mercy or compassion you know, who is it who comes over to our house and gets the good seats? How do we see people? In verses 8 to 9, James reminds these Jewish Christians of the birthmarks, as it were, of their faith by saying in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, if you show that favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So here, these Jewish Christians who I mentioned earlier that James was writing to, they would have been thinking of the Old Testament, of the royal law, the ways of God given to his people for how to reflect him, the king of kings, that royal law for being part of his family. And in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, there's a direct instruction about us not showing partiality. It says in Leviticus 19, you shall not render an unjust judgment. judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice, you shall judge your neighbor. Then this is summarized uh, later on in the chapter in Leviticus by that statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these Jewish Christians, as well as that from the Old Testament, would have been thinking at this moment when they would have encountered the words of James about Jesus' words, where he sums up, doesn't he, the entirety of the law of God into those two love commands. Love God, love your neighbor. And these churches, split in many nations, they had this information, and here was their moment to live up to that calling, but they were missing the mark. They'd forgotten who their neighbor was. And what about us? You know that person dressed in shabby clothes that you walk past on the high street is your neighbor. And that unborn child, as the debate is going on at the moment, that unborn child with Down syndrome who has no voice, they are our neighbor. 
that person that annoys you, that person that you find frustrating, they are your neighbor. How do you see people? Do you know what? I think it really needs to come down to one thing, that where we're in a conversation with someone, the only question in our minds, the only question in our minds isn't, yikes, I wonder how this person got themselves in such a mess, or hmm, how quickly can I get out of this conversation and go and speak to one of my friends, or what can I get out of this conversation for myself? I think the one question, and I imagine Jesus asking this with every encounter that he ever had with everyone, that one question being, how can I love this person well? This person in front of me right now, be they dressed however they are, how can I love them well? And that will look different for different people at different times. It will mean different things. It might not mean the quick fix of handing over money. It might mean the long, slow burn of love for that person. It might mean inviting them in. It might mean speaking truth to someone. How can I love that person well? How do we see people? Do we see people in front of us, even amongst us here this morning, as those that we're asking that question? Or in the back of our minds, are we becoming judges with evil thoughts? A Christian, American Christian author and speaker wrote in his book, Life Lessons from Unexpected People, about an encounter he had, where I think the resounding thing he must have been thinking was, how can I love this person well? He writes this, one day about the noon hour, I was walking down Chestnut Street when I noticed a homeless man walking toward me. He was covered with dirt and soot from head to toe. There was filthy stuff caked on his skin. But the most notable thing about him was his beard. It hung down almost to his waist and there was rotten food stuck in it. The man was holding a cup of McDonald's coffee and the lip of the cup was already smudged from his dirty mouth. As he staggered towards me, he seemed to be staring into his cup of coffee. Then suddenly he looked up and yelled, hey, mister, you want some of my coffee? I'm not gonna do an American accent. I have to admit, he writes, that I really didn't. But I knew that the right thing to do was to accept his generosity. And so I said, I'll take a sip. As I handed the cup back to him, I said, you're getting pretty generous, aren't you, giving away your coffee? What's gotten into you today that's made you so generous? The old derelict looked straight into my eyes and said, well, the coffee was especially delicious today, and I figured if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with people. I thought to myself, oh, man. He has really set me up. This is going to cost me $5. I asked him, I suppose there's something I can do for you in return, isn't there? The man answered, yeah, you can give me a hug. To tell the truth, I was hoping for the $5. (laughs) He put his arms around me and I put my arms around him. Then suddenly I realized something. He wasn't going to let me go. People were passing us on the sidewalk, pavement. They were staring at me. There I was, dressed in establishment garb, hugging this dirty, filthy man. 
I was embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. Then, little by little, my embarrassment changed to awe and reverence. I heard a voice echoing down the corridors of time saying, I was hungry, did you feed me? I was naked, did you clothe me? I was sick, did you care for me? These are the words of Jesus. I was the homeless man you met on Chestnut Street. Did you give me a hug? For if you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And soon we're going to come to communion, where at the communion table, we all share in one cup. Might not be a McDonald's cup, (laughs) but we all share in one cup. The bearded homeless man and the man in his, quote, establishment garb. You see, part of the secret, I think, that James is trying to get at in the second half of this chapter, part of the secret to how we see others, whether or not we'll show favoritism, how we see others, is how we see ourselves. See, that's the second question. Not, how, not just how do you see others, but how do you see yourself? It says from verses 10 through to 13 of the second chapter of James, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, James is moving on in his thinking here to think about where each one of us lies. You know, we are all, aren't we, found guilty. We are all sinners. We come to this table, whatever our status, whatever our story, each one of us as transgressors, says James. Whether we have committed murder, whether we have shown favoritism, You see, often I think the cure for our snobbery is to see ourselves for who we really are. Those who, because of our sin, need Jesus as much as the next person. You know, sin is the great leveler, isn't it, of us all. We are all brought to that same place of needing salvation, of needing the grace of God. You know, you and me, we're poor too, aren't we? We're poor too. And at this table, we're invited to hold hands with the poor. Maybe that is something that we literally need to do as well this week, to hold hands with the poor. In fact, this is such a kind of key thing for James, that when in the first chapter of his letter, in verse 21, he's talking about us uh, taking off all the filth of our sin, do you know what? He uses the exact same root word as the word that he uses here when he talks about people in shabby clothes. I find that really interesting comparing the filth of the sin that we all have to those shabby clothes that that person would come in and wear. You see, we're all a little shabby. (laughs) That's the truth, isn't it? We're all poor. But do you know what? That is actually really good news this morning. That is really good news. 
Why? Well, look at verse 5. It says that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Again and again throughout scripture, we see that the poor are privileged. No, theirs, says Jesus, in the Beatitudes, theirs is the kingdom. It's the same with children, these little ones. Jesus says it's the kingdom of God which belongs to these little ones. No, why is that? What is it that they have got right? You know, they have no other lifeline, do they? They have nowhere else to go. Children are utterly dependent. I really know that this past week. (laughs) Children are utterly dependent. Those who are poor materially have, have nothing. And we too are invited to share that same status. To come as those who just like the poor and the children are these models of faith, are these heirs of the kingdom, we too can share that status as we come empty-handed. You know, at the end of the day, it isn't ultimately about how much we have in our bank accounts, although that is important too. (laughs) But it isn't ultimately about that. It's about us coming and sharing this status as those who are poor in spirit as those who see that we too are utterly dependent on God. There is something so right, isn't there, about realizing that we have nowhere else to go but to him. And that, you see, is faith. That is the faith that James is encouraging here. Several years ago, I went on a brief trip to Mozambique to visit um, Pemba uh, and a ministry set up by a lady and her husband, uh, Heidi uh, Baker, and um, her family as well. And she went to, some of you may know of Iris Ministries um, that she uh, founded. And we, um, I went there, I traveled um, on my own. It was quite a big deal for me. I think I may have mentioned it here before um, about my trip to Mozambique. Um, and uh, I had an amazing time. And before I went there on the plane I was reading I spent some time reading some of um, her her books just in order to kind of get um, in the right mindset for this adventure that I was going to be having and uh, listen to what Heidi Baker uh, writes she says I've never met a person in Mozambique in the last four years who hasn't said yes to Jesus the poor come by the hundreds by the thousands by the hundreds of thousands They come one by one because they know they're hungry. There's something about the poor that delights the heart of God. They're contrite. They know they're in need. You know, what is it about the poor that makes them want to come to Jesus? What is it about the poor that literally brings the kingdom of God in a way the well-fed don't? It has to do with hunger. It has to do with their need. They know they need God. They're hungry and thirsty. The Lord wants to cause even the rich, even the middle class, to be poor in spirit and know that they are in need of him. So how do you see people this morning? And how do you see yourself? Will you join me in asking that question in every encounter, be it with whoever. How can I love this person well in this moment, given to me by God to encounter this person 
made in his image, loved and valued. How can I love them well? Will you join with me this week in seeking out those who are in need, in giving them a good seat, in loving them well? And will you join me in guessing your own poverty too? <laughs> Realizing that you're a little shabby, <laughs> but that's okay. Because when we come as those who humbly, completely depend on God, that is faith. And when we have that faith, what wonderful, glorious things we will see because isn't the great message of the gospel that Jesus takes our filthy rags and instead clothes us in robes of righteousness? So will you see your own poverty this morning, but also your own gloriousness, that you are clothed with splendor, that you are loved by him, however much you do or don't have? You are loved. And as a loved person, how can you love others well? Let's pray. God, we know we need your help with this. Would you um, open our eyes? Firstly, to see ourselves as those in desperate need of you. And then to see others with love. Help us, God, to, to be a people who really, really love others well. Give us stories like that one I read of sharing hugs and coffee cups. Of being prepared to get dirty. In your name we pray. Amen.